Good morning, church. Joining us online from the comfort of whatever sofa or kitchen table is your sanctuary this morning. Thank you again for making time for us. This morning, in our series on hope, we're going to talk about the end of the world. And that might sound a little bit antithetical. Why why would one have anything to do with the other? And if that feels like a topic that you're not interested in whatsoever, let me encourage you just to stay with us for a minute. Because I don't know what what that language conjures up for you, words like apocalypse and Armageddon and Judgment Day, all those conversations that we grew up as teenagers, the mark of the beast, the great tribulation, posters of people on the street with cardboard signs saying, of course, repent, the end is near. It seems like a topic for people that, that feels an awful lot like it has something to do with the dark side of the coming future. It made me think about a line from that Billy Crystal movie when Harry met Sally. The Billy Crystal character says, when I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, if I die before I finish, I'll know how it all ends. That, my friends, is a dark side. Sometimes I think our conversations about how God's great themes and his, his great work of creation play themselves out over history, that when it comes to consideration of the end game, of the last days, that somehow we imagine that all is good and beautiful and just and true. Everything that we know that is noble and bright about God gives way to something that feels darker and, and gives way to a time that is somehow filled with these awful images that belong as much to science fiction movies as they do to scripture. But today, I would love to talk to you about the last page of our book, of the Bible. You know, because for, for the early church, for those first friends of Jesus, they looked forward to the return of Jesus, to the second coming, more than anything else. We've seen in this series on hope, how hope as a theme was never really regarded as a virtue, as something to be desired in the ancient world. It was the church that took hope, which was looked at very lowly as a crutch for weak people, and turned it into a prized commodity. And that hope that they would see Jesus again, that was what they hoped for more than anything else. They thought about it. They talked about it. They sang about it. They rooted for it. They wrote about it more than 300 times in the New Testament. For instance, here Paul says in the little book of Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, grace that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But it teaches us all these things while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great Savior, of Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope. And as we've seen, the Bible is a book that is resplendent with hope, is filled with the language of hope. But this is the only occasion where we get that language of our blessed hope. 
What is that? that? That hope that allowed them to face life or death with joy and with love and with unstoppable conviction. We all want a hope like that. At least I hope we do. But we can't find hope like that, the hope that they talked about, if we don't hope for the things that they hoped for. Does that make sense? So today, I want to talk with you about what they called their blessed hope. And I want to start by acknowledging at the start of this message that some of the issues related to our discussions about the end of days, about the end times, these are hotly debated topics among Christians, among people who are far smarter than I am. But the goal at the end of this talk is not to unravel all those thorny questions, but for the blessed hope to be your blessed hope. Not some cartoon picture, not some science fiction movie, not speculation, but serious, thoughtful consideration of where human history and God's creation are all headed. And spoiler alert, right at the beginning, if you've not read the book, if you've not read the Bible, on the very last page, Jesus is coming back. You don't have to be happy about that, I suppose. But if you were ever going to be happy about anything, this would be a good time to be happy about it. So this is the time to lean into a person sitting next to you if they're there and give them a hug or a high five. This is the time to shout hallelujah. This is the time to text somebody and say, that's the great news that we hope for. If you've never read the end of the story, that's it. Jesus is coming back. We're going to spend the rest of the message unpacking exactly what that means and why that is the source of our blessed hope. I thought what we could do today is to frame our talk around a series of questions, questions which are repeatedly raised, which sometimes are answered maybe inadequately, that prevent us, I think, from really embracing what the hope of Jesus' return means for us. So here's the first question. Why is Jesus going to come back? And why is he coming back at all? Did, did stuff not get finished the first time? Why, why the repeat trip? Often when people use words like apocalypse, which actually is a beautiful word, it just means unveiling or uncovering. The apocalypse is the unveiling of Jesus. It's the uncovering of God's design for the last days. It's the unveiling of God's judgment, which maybe is bad news for evil and corruption, but is good news for God's creation and for God's people. The sign always seems to be, to be phrased that way, repent, the end is near. But that's meant to be good news. The most popular book on the second coming, in fact, probably the second most popular book outside of the Bible published in the area of of Christian living or Christian theology over the past 50 years, had a picture of the planet Earth being utterly destroyed, consumed in flames. It's hard to hope for that. So let me start here. Why is Jesus coming back? Jesus is coming back to fix 
what is broken, not to destroy what is broken. He's coming back to reverse the curse, to dry tears, to end sin, to stop suffering, and to evict death. He's coming back to remove plastic from the oceans and pollution from the air and corruption from the government. And he's coming up to do the same, or coming back to do the same thing in our own hearts. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Notice these words. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Magisterial words. Paul says, For all creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, to be uncovered. Because one of the things that's being unveiled in the great unveiling, the apocalypse, is what God's true humanity looks like. Let's read on Romans 8. For the creation itself has been subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be one day liberated from its bondage. What kind of bondage? Bondage to decay. And it will be liberated in such a way that it's brought into freedom and into glory for the children of God. I used to have this misconception when I thought about the return of Jesus. I'm not sure any of you have ever felt this. That it meant that everything that I saw around me would be destroyed. And the problem for me was that there were there are things on this earth that I loved. There were fingerprints of the artistry of God that, that I regretted thinking that they would all perish in, in some cataclysmic flame. And I found a, I had a hard time hoping that the earth would be destroyed. And I began thinking, well, maybe I'm just not very spiritual. But then the truth began to settle in my mind that, that maybe I had understood part of it wrong. John writes in the book of Revelation, this is in chapter 21, in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He's caught up in this majest, majestic vision of of heaven itself settling into earth, of everything that's glorious and beautiful coming to rest in what was already designed to be a reflection of the majesty of God in creation itself. You know, in, in John's language, in the language of ancient Greece, there were two words that were used when he says new heaven, new earth. Two words for the word new. The first is neos. You know that word. We use the word neo all the time. It means something that is chronologically new, like a new car that just rolls off the assembly line. In fact, I think that was even the name of a car, wasn't it? The neo. But the other word that's used is the word kairos, which doesn't mean chronologically new, but it means qualitatively new. Like when you go into an old house, an old house that's got great bones, real character, and you do one of those marvelous renovations that just makes it feel fresh and new and, 
and striking and beautiful. That's the word kairos. And that's the word that John uses for the new earth. Not that one gets pushed aside and and something else rolls off of God's assembly line, but something with good bones, because remember, God made it, undergoes divine renovation. That's something worth hoping for. Lewis Smead's a great teacher. I think we've mentioned him before in this series. Would sometimes ask his class, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die? And heaven would always win with a landslide. Does everybody in the room put up their hands? Of course, of course. And then he'd ask them a second question. Who wants to go to heaven right now, in this minute, today? And hands would kind of go, well, maybe partway up. I think I want to go. I know I'm supposed to want to go, but honestly, I'm not quite sure I want to go right now. There are things that I would miss. There were people I'd want to hug one more time. And then a third question. Lewis says, how many of you would like to wake up tomorrow and find that the person that you love most passionately loves you back even more? How many of you would like to wake up in a world where every hungry baby gets fed and every virus gets cured and every grave gets emptied and every army gets disbanded and every lion lays down with the lamb and swords are beaten into plowshares? How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow into a world where you have complete self-awareness and zero guilt and wake up breathing God as if he were air and loving him as if he were breathtaking and loving everyone else in the bargain. And hands go up everywhere. And then Lewis would conclude by saying, if you want that, you want Jesus to come back. In other words, Jesus is coming back, but it's not the end of the world. It's the end of all that is wrong with the world. And that's why there's so many images in the Bible of the earth being purified and refined in fire, like like the way gold is purified and refined. God doesn't destroy the world. Fire is not just an image of torture. Fire is one of the most beautiful, helpful, utilitarian tools that God has ever provided for reshaping things. He loves the world. And so don't miss out on this, that redemption, which is, yes, about my sin and being made right with God, but redemption is also about the redemption of creation. But everything that God has made, for God so loved the world, the cosmos. This is my Father's world. The world's groaning, not to be annihilated, but to be liberated. And so we respond now. We respond as the people of God always have. By celebrating that God who made the world loves the world, holds the world, cares for the world. And after all, that's a truth worth singing. This is my Father's world. Let's sing that together.
This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget, and though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And so we hope for that. And we bring that hope into every situation in our Father's world, into your marriage or into your singleness, into your parenting or into your childlessness, into your job or your joblessness. Jesus is coming back. And it will be fixed. If not now, then then. And if not fully in this life, then certainly in the next. And that, of course, leads to the next question. A question that people have been asking for a long time. If it's so good, when's it going to happen? And the short answer is, nobody knows. And how frustrating is that? Nobody knows. Jesus was quite clear on this. Matthew 24, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. People wonder if we might be living in the last days. In fact, I I hear that a lot from people These are certainly the last days, and and normally we say that because we look around and and we see something disturbing or cataclysmic, and, and it looks like the world is going into decay, and understanding is that the last days are a world in decay to be destroyed. So to people who say, are we living in the last days, the answer based on Scripture is most certainly, yes, we are. Of course we are. Uh, The Bible is quite clear about this. After the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out. God invested himself in people. Happened on Pentecost. And Peter explained what was going on. He did so by citing something that the prophet Joel had predicted a long time ago. Here's the words from Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Joel first and then Peter following him was saying that that was the sign of the last days. That the Holy Spirit, that God would take up residence in the life of his people. And when you see that, it means the last days have arrived. And that happened. That was a historical event. It happened at Pentecost. The last days, according to Peter, began there 2,000 years ago. And people wonder, though, if what happened 2,000 years ago was the last days, how can this still be the last days 2,000 years later? It doesn't feel very last in some way. (laughs) I don't know if any of you have members of your family who like to watch football. And you ask them at the end of the fourth quarter, how much time is remaining in the game? And they say, two minutes. That was the two-minute warning. And any of you who are enthusiastic fans of football know that that last two minutes can stretch out to be an hour. And if you clock your watch at 120 seconds, 
You will be severely disappointed. Have you ever found yourself thinking, it's just been so, so long. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. I mean, if you've ever, even for a moment, entertained that thought, you're not alone. Listen to what Peter wrote later in the Bible. This is the little book of 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that Jesus promised? And Peter goes on to offer some really hopeful thoughts about God and about time. This is what he says in verse 8, same chapter. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. Is it any wonder that, that our human minds, as small as they are compared to the vastness of the universe and the universe itself sitting within the even greater vastness of who God is, that those very small minds would operate on a completely different scale of time? Man comes to God and says, is it true that for you a minute is like a million years? And God says, yes. Then for you, a penny must be like a million dollars. And God says, yes. The man says, Lord, I sure would like one of those pennies. And God says, okay, just wait here a minute. (laughs) We think that God ought to be on our timetable. In some ways, it feels, it feels like children stuck in the back seat of a car on a long journey. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And there's actually a wonderful reason why we're not there yet. And here it is, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God waited until at least now. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a me. There wouldn't be a you. It's like God so loves people. God is so excited about human beings that he says, hey, there could be a Betty, there could be a Deshaun, there there could be an Abdul. I can't stop yet. I'm not done yet. Therefore, the Bible says, in light of that day, be hopeful every day. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25. Let's not stop encouraging one another. Let's do so all the more as we see the day approaching. The day of Jesus was so great in their minds that they just called it the day, capital D, the day. So you be hopeful about the day because the day might be today. But even if it's not, this day, however painful or however frustrating or however exhilarating or however joyful, this day will be fully redeemed on the day, however distant.
Maybe think about it this way. The day that, that Jesus died was a Friday, a tragic Friday, an awful Friday, a cursed Friday. Until Easter Sunday. You realize that, that Friday wasn't Good Friday until Sunday was Easter Sunday. That day redeemed the other day. And so it is for you today. Today might be Sad Sunday. Tomorrow might be Miserable Monday. Or, or maybe there's Terrible Tuesday. Or I wish I weren't here Wednesday. It's okay. It, it doesn't mean it's okay any more than Friday was okay. It means that the Lord is coming. And the day is coming. And that makes this day manageable. And while we wait, we just keep encouraging each other all the more because we see that day and we see it approaching. I mean, that day is going to redeem everything wrong with this one and it's going to make everything right about this one pale in comparison. And so in worship and in singing, we celebrate that day. We pray for it. We cry victory. And we lift up his name and we sing, even so, Lord, even so, come.
justice. All will be new. Your name forever faithful and true. Jesus is coming soon. So cry hallelujah. Maybe another really important question, especially if you're exploring faith or if you're not quite sure about all this end of the world stuff, is why do they keep making such a big deal about this second coming about Jesus' return. If it all feels speculative, if nobody really knows the future, the when, does it really make a difference in real life? Remember, our, our series is meant to offer real hope for the real world. Isn't this a little too pie-in-the-sky, airy-fairy to make a difference? It turns out that the difference is enormous. I've known moments in life, maybe you have too, where the pain is bad enough that, that maybe for some moments you feel like, I just don't know that I can endure it anymore. It just hurts too much. And even if the end of pain means the end of life, that would be better. It's a wonderful book, a, a book written by a doctor named Viktor Frankl. He called it Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel was a Jewish psychiatrist who survived concentration camps in World War II. He wrote that for prisoners, the ability to imagine a future that was worthwhile was a life or death capacity. While they were there in the camps, brutalized and starving, he would imagine vividly in his mind, standing in a classroom, being able to teach again, or enjoying a friend, or just sitting quietly by a fire, cuddled up and reading a book. By contrast, he said that sometimes in the camps, they would find people unable to imagine any kind of meaningful future. 
and they would simply lose the will to live. And he wrote that they would literally lie down in the mud and neither pleas nor beatings would move them and they would simply lay down and die. Hope. Hope, as it turns out, is the most practical thing in the world. The ability to imagine, because remember, hope is imagination and desire and belief all bound up together. To imagine, to remember, uh, to desire, to picture another world that separates us from the dead. All that's evil, all that's opposed to God, all that's sordid, sordid or unjust or everything that sits on shaky ground will one day be unmasked and defeated. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. We see lots of this. And where we see it most is in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, a book written primarily to give hope to God's people. Let me give you some examples. The book of Revelation in chapter 17 we read about an adulterous woman of Babylon with seven heads who drinks blood. We're told the seven heads stand for seven hills, and in the end, her enemies all eat her flesh. That sounds weird to us, doesn't it? That sounds like zombies or, or something, Babylon, an evil empire, one that oppressed Israel hundreds of years earlier. In the Old Testament, of course, adultery is always used as a picture of people being unfaithful to God. So when John writes these words, in John's day, the country trying to oppose God's people, trying to press them into adultery, being unfaithful to God and to worship Caesar, that country was Rome. And you might know this, those of you who are historians, Rome was the city built on seven hills. So with that picture, with that vision, John is saying, don't be afraid. Don't give up hope. Don't be terrified of Rome. Don't you quit. Because Rome is going down one day. In this kind of literature, like the book of Revelation, those things get said in imagery, like a kind of a code. And incidentally, a really helpful book on the subject, if you want to read some more, was written by a man named Bruce Metzger, and it's called Breaking the Code. The kind of imagery that's used in the book of Revelation is is used partly because Rome was not a big fan of free speech. I mean, John couldn't simply write in his letters, Caesar stinks, and Rome's going down. If he'd done so, he would have put himself and all of his readers in grave danger. So he uses a kind of literature filled with imagery that's meant to inspire and fill his readers with hope. John wanted to make people see very vividly that there was something cosmic going on, something at stake, that their little lives were caught up, bound in something, bound up in something far more significant. For us to be able to study the Bible better, and particularly books like Revelations better, let me just mention one of the key principles for understanding not just the Bible, but any kind of literature. One of the first questions you should always be asking after you've prayed for God's guidance is, what is it that God, through the writer of this book, intended 
for his first readers to hear. What did this writer mean for his readers to understand when these passages were written? You really have to start there. And if you rip it away from its original context, it can mean anything. And and boy, as we saw last fall in our series on the tough questions, that has led us down all kinds of rabbit holes, using the Bible to justify terrible things in the world. But this principle, this will help you a lot. Now, I know in our day there are lots of preachers who will go through the book of Revelation with all of its fascinating imagery, and they'll try and do sort of a a connect-the-dots exercise to connect this image here to this current event in our world there. And it's, it's fascinating to watch it happen. But, but always start, at least, with this question. What would this have meant to them? Remember, John is a pastor. He's a pastor writing to his people, writing under the inspiration of God's Spirit. What was he trying to say to them? What did he intend for them to hear? A crazy little example, but I was reading an online thread a little while back. It's talking about Michael Jordan, and it kept calling Michael Jordan the goat. And people were confused by this image, and I was one of them. Goat? Scapegoat? I mean, is the idea that Michael Jordan, because of his retirement, should somehow take the blame for the decline of the greatest basketball franchise ever. It's actually kind of an image from the Bible, and I was proud of myself for knowing it and knowing its heritage. The scapegoat got me thinking about all the other goats in sports and history, those responsible in one way or another for the collapse or decline of something, those who take the blame. Turns out goat is an acronym for greatest of all time. Michael Jordan, the goat. You see, context context matters. Is the image a scapegoat who takes the blame? Or is it the greatest who receives the glory? It's important to start by acknowledging what it meant. And then we get to unpack the riches of what it still means. We delight in imagery. It moves our imagination. It makes us think. It's especially important in the Bible, which describes a hope which in many ways is beyond human language. A hope that gives life its, its precious value, its ultimate significance. This hope is the blessed hope. Because it tells you to keep going even when nothing else will. It tells you that every life matters to God And it does so using very powerful, often very dramatic imagery. It does so to explain spiritual reality to people. Let me give you another example. You see the number of 12. It happens all through the book of Revelation. In fact, it happens all through the Bible. There were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. They were divided. They were lost in exile. So that number 12 came to represent the idea of the family being brought back together again. You see this over and over and over again. When Jesus calls 12 disciples, it's a recognition that that God is gathering people back in again. You see the description of the heavenly city in Revelation chapter 21. There are 12 gates. 
They're each made up of a giant pearl. If you ever heard that phrase before, the pearly gates, that's where it comes from. But just this one enormous, beautiful pearl. And again, it's a symbol for spiritual reality. God wants people to come home. And there's a gate for everyone. There's a gate for you. In Revelation 7, John writes about how 12,000 saints are sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000 people. Some people will do their math and said, well, heaven's gates close after 144,000. Again, it's like goat and goat. You missed the point. It's a symbol of everybody coming home. Revelation goes on to picture not just that, but the multitude, not just from Israel, but every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is our God. God loves Israel. But God also loves Palestinians and Sudanese and North Koreans and South Koreans. He even loves people who live in Brampton. (laughs) That, by the way, is the motive for evangelism. You never stop hoping for any human being on the planet to find their way home. That's evangelism. This imagery also describes a spiritual truth. That Jesus is bigger than your biggest problem. Revelation talks about tribulation. The years of tribulation. It does so in language that is terrifying and sometimes is used to terrify people. But anybody who's endured tribulation knows that the lived reality is terrifying on its own. Jesus himself spoke about it. John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, in this world, you will have trials. But in fact, the word there is tribulation. Same word. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I am bigger than the biggest of your problems. In other words, expect problems, expect pain, expect difficulties, but don't get discouraged and don't give up. Jesus is bigger than your problems. And in doing this, John borrows a lot of the rich imagery from the Old Testament to fire the imagination of his people, of his listeners, to stoke their hopes in Jesus. John says in one vision, this is Revelations 1 verse 14, describing Jesus, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. The point isn't that Jesus prematurely went gray. The Bible's pro-white hair. In the Bible... To have white hair was to be godlike. It's a picture from the book of Daniel, a picture of wisdom and authority. And all of his readers, they would have known that. And John says his eyes were like blazing fire because the eyes of God are alive. And they're always watching and they miss nothing. Like fire because there's warmth and they purify. Fire reveals what's gold and what's dross. John goes on to say of Jesus, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Again, the physical imagery seems kind of odd to us. 
clearly, I don't think John is trying to say that when you see Jesus, there'll be a blade sticking out from between his lips. But words have power. Words have power even on a human level. That's why John uses these images, sometimes even images of weapons, but so do we. Do you ever shoot off your mouth? Isn't that an image of weaponry? Have you ever dodged verbal bullets? Have you ever seen somebody explode in anger? John's doing sort of the same thing. And here's the message he's conveying to his people. Don't you worry about what Caesar says. Don't you worry even about what your enemy says or what your boss says or what your friend says. Because one day Jesus will say the word and all opposition will simply crumble. And every other word will fall to the ground. Maybe just one or two more examples. I hope, I hope this is, I hope it's hopeful for you. John says that when you see Jesus, you will see him coming on the clouds. Again, the idea is not here that he rides to earth on water vapor. Biblical writers use cosmic images of nature to describe the power of God, who is the Lord of and the creator of nature. The prophet Isaiah said a long time ago that when God was coming in judgment to Egypt, said in, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah 19 verse 1, that the Lord rides on a swift cloud as he comes to Egypt. I kind of doubt that means that God is going to use a cumulus cloud as his Uber to get down to earth. It meant that God is coming in judgment and power. Jesus is coming on a cloud to bring justice, to do so with authority. Nobody gets away with anything. Not Babylon, not Rome, also not me. Judgment is coming my way. My sin, my deceit, my arrogance, my contempt for the poor, my greed, all these things one day will be revealed. And I promise you this, folks, I promise you, this will be too much for any human being to bear on their own. John says this of Jesus. Have a look. Revelations 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Imagine that scene. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He falls like a dead man before this holy, sinless Jesus. And then, and then comes one of the most wonderful moments in all the Bible. John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I was dead and now look, I am alive. And I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The Ancient of Days, the first and the last. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, puts his hand on his old friend. His old disciple who he hadn't seen in many decades. And he says, hey John... It's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
It'll be like that for you and me one day, I pray. That's our blessed hope. From there, the images come so fast and thick that, that we're almost overwhelmed. John is told to look at the line of Judah, but when he turns to look, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. This is the king who became a crucified savior. This is the greatest of all time. The, the fair-haired boy of all humanity has become the scapegoat on whom the sins of humanity were placed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and with all creation I sing to the praise of the King of kings. For you are my everlasting, and, and I adore you. How can we not stop and join in creation's great hallelujah in its triumphant song at the return of Jesus? Let's sing that together. It's on heaven's mercy seat. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on. Heaven's mercy sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You
now this is the most important part. Since the return of Jesus will not be the end of the world, since God's plan has always been new creation, new heaven and new earth, and since sin and injustice are eventually for sure going down, God invites you to be a part of this great movement and the invitation begins now. Remember the last verse of the hymn that we sang at the beginning of the service? It said that precisely. This is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget. Though wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. This is my father's world and the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth be one. That's the project. That's what's going to happen fully one day when he comes back. Heaven and earth will be one, fully connected. His will be done. That's the project. That's what you pray every time you close your eyes and say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Up there, down here, and it will be so. Therefore, Peter says, this is 1 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Therefore, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day. The day of God. And then this remarkable phrase. And as you look forward to the day of God, you speed its coming. When is Jesus coming back? I don't know. Nobody knows. But if you join God in, in his creation project, the kingdom of God, Peter says you actually speed the day. You, I mean, imagine that, little you, accelerate the redemption and the renewal of all things. There is this great battle going on. You know that and you feel it. It rages between good and evil. But it's not good guys like you and me against bad guys like them. And it's not somewhere way off in the future only. It's happening right now. And it's happening in here. Your life, my life, for good or for evil, has a significance beyond anything you could imagine. That's why literature like the book of Revelation has such dramatic imagery, so much battle imagery. Because people make choices all the time to love God or to ignore him, to indulge hate or to battle hate, to judge others or to embrace them, to redeem time or just kill time. And this is part of where that great cosmic battle plays itself out. But Jesus is coming back to redeem the world. And he invites you all to be part of that, that great project. And that means that no good thing that you do together with him ever gets wasted. Every act of love, every good deed done by the Spirit, every cup of cold water given in his name, every temptation resisted with his help, every addiction confessed, Every trash can emptied in love, for crying out loud. Every COVID patient treated with dignity. Every moment of exhausted parental love. Every brutal hurt forgiven through grace. 
Every tree planted just to give him joy. Every attempt to distribute food or comfort to someone who is sick or dying. Or to educate a child who's been forgotten. Every small group that gets shepherded with compassion. Every racial barrier that gets transcended. Every, every addiction or every, every addition of a single word of love in an email. Every song that gets sung in true worship. And every whisper, if any authentic sincerity that your soul could muster up, none of it gets lost. None of it is wasted. He's coming back. And so will you join him in this matchless movement, this movement of self-giving love that, that has been ebbing and flowing towards the great day, the day of his return. We enter into that battle against hatred and coldness and resentment and selfishness that really is what will destroy you and the world. And will you place your life and your mind, your time and your gifts, your resources, your work, your will, even your wounds, whatever you have, place it completely at the disposal of God in this one great cause. And if, we, if you will, I promise you this, no matter how many earthly bumps you hit, in fact, no matter how badly your earthly life turns out, in the face of death, you have hope. You have hope. You have blessed hope. Let it be so. Amen.